covert is secret only in the sense that the U.S. hand is hidden. But because it's action, you are supposed to, if the program is working properly, cause change that is detectable. You want to influence activities in a foreign target. I'm David Chris, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 17th, 2021. Today's podcast is the third in a series of deep-dive historical inquiries following last year's review of British Signals Intelligence with two alumni of GCHQ and January's discussion of the famous Project Venona with NSA's senior historian Dave Hatch. Today I'm joined by David Robarge, the chief historian at the Central Intelligence Agency, to discuss covert action. Now, you might reasonably think, if it's really covert, perhaps there's nothing to say. But it turns out we've got plenty to talk about, beginning with the difference between the action part of covert action, which often has highly visible effects, and the covert part, which has to do more with the role of the U.S. government in causing those effects. Altogether, David Robarge tells us, around 50 covert actions have been declassified over the years, and we talk about several of them, involving the Middle East, Western Europe, Africa, and Central America. This being lawfare, of course, we also talk about the legal and policy rules governing covert action, the process by which covert action is reviewed and approved, and the famous Washington Post test. It's a very candid, clear-eyed, and informative review of an important part of U.S. foreign policy and history with insights from someone who has seen it all and can talk about, well, not all of it, but at least a lot of it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 17th, covert action. So David, welcome to the podcast. Please tell our listeners about yourself, your career at CIA, and your interest in history. Yeah, certainly, David. Thank you for having me and inviting me to talk about this very important subject. I joined the agency in 1989. I had been up at Columbia working on my doctorate through the 1980s and all along intended to be a university professor. But the job market was very bad for liberal arts at the time, and I cast about looking for a variety of jobs that would use research, analysis, writing, uh, teaching skills. One of them turned out to be CIA. I didn't get into the analytic work right away. I took a get-in-the-door job, if you will, with a, in effect, doing a digital document indexing for analysts to use in their work. Eventually, a position in the analytic directorate opened up, courtesy of Saddam Hussein starting the first Gulf War, and that's how I got into the Counterterrorism Center, which is a wonderful place to have a first job at CIA because, like the mission centers nowadays, it combined the various directorates in one location to work against a common target. So I was in an analytic branch, but I was sitting next door to operations officers we had liaison officials from other parts of the community working with us. It was a wonderful place to, in effect, cut your teeth on a high-profile issue of great policy and national security import. I was there for about three years, then rotated back to the Middle East division, where I worked as a leadership analyst studying Iraq for a few years. And by that time, I had finished my PhD. I was working on it nights and weekends, courtesy of a very patient and thoughtful wife and family. 
And uh, 95, I was awarded the uh, Columbia PhD in American history. And just around that time, some movement occurred on the history staff, and I was able to land a position there at the end of 96 as a staff historian, where I continued in that position for nine years. And then when the chief historian position opened up, I moved to that. So I have two functions at the history staff. I am both the chief historian of the agency, meaning I'm supposed to be the preeminent expert on CIA history substantively, but I'm also chief of the history staff, which means I have to manage a small group of staff and contract historians doing their projects, reviewing their work, making sure the product is up to snuff, and also handling some administrative matters in the larger unit the history staff is situated in, the Center for the Study of Intelligence, which looks at the past, present, and future of the intelligence profession. Wow. So you've got quite a perspective then on the agency's recent history from direct observation, as well as its more distant history, I guess, based on your professional endeavors. So just to get us off on the right foot and set the tone for this very serious podcast, I asked a similar question of Dave Hatch at NSA, but what is the weirdest thing that you've experienced as a CIA historian? And I don't really want to stoke interagency competition here. I mean, I do a little bit. But when I asked Dave Hatch this, he said he routinely gets calls from folks uh, asking him to help them use NSA technology to locate buried treasure, I guess, by like retasking a satellite or something. And they uh, sometimes offer to split the take with him. So <laughs> what can you tell us uh, from the CIA historical twilight zone? I'm afraid I don't have anything quite as exotic as Dave's, but we do get, and our our public affairs office can certainly appreciate this as well, we certainly get our share of bizarre inquiries from people on a range of subjects. One of them, of course, the hardy perennial of the UFOs, what's really going on out at Area 51 and where are we hiding the aliens? Uh, We get our share of inquiries about the JFK assassination, what was the real story behind it? Why are we continuing to cover up our role in it? Uh, The drug testing program called MKUltra that was released uh, publicly in the 1970s with a lot of distortions in the record. Um, Just various myths and legends, uh, some of them fairly important, some of them kind of odd. Uh, Some people wonder, for example, if when we were building the foundation for Uh, The original headquarters building, a tractor got buried down in the basement inadvertently. (laughs) Along with Jimmy Hoffa's body or something. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Some people just ask some very interesting questions about things they've heard about in the past. Uh, Like, did we really have a Nike missile base on our property at one point? Answer is yes. Uh, and so forth. So it's just little odd things like that that uh, kind of spice up the day here and there. (laughs) Makes it a little more interesting. When I was in, I used to get calls every now and then asking whether, in fact, it was true that putting on a tinfoil hat would block the mind-reading satellites. (laughs) And I said that that was a trade secret. We couldn't reveal that. So today we're going to talk about covert action. But this being the Lawfare podcast, let's start with a little bit of law. Covert action today I mean, it's relatively overt in the sense that it's expressly authorized by statute. Isn't that right? Yes. You have the uh, Title 50 uh, of the U.S. Federal Code, which explicitly states that 
well, it defines covert action itself, which we can get to in a little bit, but it yeah. also lays out in quite elaborate fashion a whole variety of requirements for presidential findings, that is, express written permissions, uh, authorizations for the agency or another agency if the president so deems to conduct covert action. It explains how we are supposed to report to oversight, uh, what should be in a finding, what covert action is not. Uh, it's a quite uh, elaborate layout of uh, legal language that tells us what it is and in some cases what we can't do. Okay, so let's start with what it is. Well, what is it? Tell me what the statutory or legal or functional definitions are. In the law, covert action is defined as an activity or activities of the U.S. government to influence political, economic, or military conditions abroad where it is intended that the role of the United States government will not be apparent or acknowledged publicly. Now, in that definition, I want to emphasize the two parts of covert action. And here we get into a little bit of a definitional distinction that a lot of people, even in our profession, confuse. They don't distinguish clandestine from covert. Now, I don't know if this is an inheritance from the English or the British, because they use them interchangeably. But we really should distinguish between clandestine and covert. And here's what I mean by that. A clandestine operation, let's say an espionage operation, where we recruit somebody, run them, take their secrets, use them to inform policy and so forth, that whole business, that is supposed to be secret from start to finish. You want to hide the fact that you've recruited an asset in a foreign government and that asset is reporting secrets to you. In fact, in some cases, the secrets might be so sensitive you can't act on them lest you blow your source. But an espionage activity is supposed to be secret from beginning to end. Covert is secret only in the sense that the U.S. hand is hidden. But because it's action, you are supposed to, if the program is working properly, cause change that is detectable. You want to influence activities in a foreign target, whether it's helping a political party, supporting an insurgency, assisting a government in suppressing an insurgency, sending propaganda, or as we call it today, covert influence messages into that country. The whole point of that range of activity is to make things different in that target than they were before. And you want people to notice the difference. Okay. You want the political party to be more active. You want the insurgency to be more aggressive, whatever. And that's what we mean by influence. But who's doing the influencing is the secret, or in our definition, the more precise covert part of covert action. So if you take the two terms, you have to distinguish between what's being kept secret and what you're trying to accomplish. Okay, that makes sense. So the effects obviously are going to be overt in the sense that they're going to be felt and, and there will be effects, but just our, the provenance may not be uh, revealed. And, and in fact, the, the definition also expressly excludes certain kinds of traditional intelligence, counterintelligence, law enforcement, military activities. Isn't that right? That, I like that because it makes a pretty explicit connection between history and law. Yes, even though when we talk about covert action, we're nowadays always referring to a whole of government approach that covert action needs to be synchronized with everything else the government is doing 
overtly militarily, economically, if that's an appropriate mix of things, but that it does not include traditional espionage, regular diplomacy, law enforcement, or other things that provide routine support to what the U.S. government does every day. Sometimes that causes a little bit of confusion because if we are talking about whole of government, then we are, in effect, working with other parts of the U.S. government that do overt activity. But you do need to segregate the covert action activity specifically under these legal authorities. Okay. So let's say we're landing troops on the Normandy beaches. That's not covert action. It's kept secret until they get there. But once they arrive, it's pretty hard to conceal it. On the other hand, if we send you know, the SEALs to Abbottabad, that was covert action, was it? Yes, that was the, the UBL takedown was designed as a covert action, principally for diplomatic reasons. Had we sent in the military, it would have been an act of war, which would have caused huge issues with not only the Pakistani government, but the international community. By putting the program, the operation, under CIA authorities, we gave it the legal justification of being a covert action, and then the military was seconded to us as the operational arm of the operation. I see. So Director Panetta is sort of ultimately running it, but Admiral McRaven obviously controlling the military assets closer to the uh, pointy end. Um, exactly. but, then, but then President Obama, as soon as it's a, deemed a success and we've gotten our guys out, is uh, going on national TV to reveal it. So covert actions don't have to stay covert forever. <laughs> no, and indeed many don't. That is one of the issues that should always be built into the planning and construction of a covert action, uh, the consequences of its almost inevitable disclosure at some point. We can talk about that later when we're discussing the architecture of programs, but that is a key point. And the president, of course, has ultimate declassification authority, and it's up to him to decide when or if to disclose the U.S. hand. Okay. And one more just limitation on what covert action is and isn't. I mean, whatever it is, it's supposed to be focused abroad. Um, and in fact, there's a, an express statutory prohibition on covert action intended to influence United States political processes, public opinion, policies, or media. And that's also obviously in 12333, the executive order. Yes. So, so we don't do covert action on ourselves, as it were. This involves the concept of blowback, which is influencing the domestic situation in the U.S. because of something we do overseas. You'll notice in the language, it's pretty precise about intended to influence. Now, everybody realizes that, for example, when you're doing a media operation, people in the U.S. can listen, watch, download, whatever the technology is. But the point is, the messages we're putting out through those platforms are not intended to influence the United States audience, but rather the foreign audience. The fact that people in the U.S. listen to it and maybe it even changes their views about things, that's unintentional. That's not the point of the program. And it, that's just an inevitable consequence of technology. Yeah. And I mean, this is a question only a lawyer would love maybe, but I mean, in today's, you know, hyper-connected world of the internet in which location and geography become less and less relevant and and so forth, do you, do you think the lawyers are having more difficulty uh, discerning an intent that's focused abroad because the effects 
may be more uh, spread across the globe, or, or do you have the sense that your legal colleagues are still able to manage it? I won't speak for them because I don't deal with them in that context, but I can speak just generically about our function in covert action. It does get extremely complicated when you're talking about the interconnectedness of the world these days. And it also makes it very difficult for us to measure the effectiveness of what we're doing when people are getting so many messages on similar vein or contradictory vein through the same processes. Uh, we can talk again later about measures of effectiveness and how they need to be built into a program. I would like to add also uh, some other restrictions that uh, have been placed on our covert action capabilities. These are quite specific. Uh, one is in uh, 1976, Director of Central Intelligence George H.W. Bush banned uh, the use of American journalists and members of the clergy in any kind of covert action. And also, in, you're familiar with this case, the, uh, the Ramparts exposures uh, in the late 1960s that we were using private voluntary organizations in the U.S. as fronts for covert action. That was banned after President Johnson organized a high-level committee to look into the practice, the Katzenbach Committee. And as a result, we have had since 1967 a prohibition on using American voluntary organizations as fronts for covert action activity. Mm. And so there's an express prohibition in the guidelines on journalists and clergy. Are there other categories of people who, or positions or professions that can't be used, or is it just those two, really? Well, the Peace Corps has always been off limits ever since it was set up uh, in the early 60s. Non-government organizations, it gets a little dicey because of their necessarily international nature in many respects. So I, I want to get into the operational details there, but it does get into a little bit of a gray area when you're talking about that kind of method. Okay. All right. Well, without getting into anything classified, let's talk a little bit about the process for review of particular covert action plans. I mean, just roughly speaking, how does that work? Sort of how does a covert action plan take place? Is it typically bottoms up because the CIA sees an opportunity to do something really nifty? <laughs> or is it top down because the president or NSC has a foreign policy goal and is looking for a tool among others in the toolbox in order to effectuate that goal? How does it start and how does it go through the machine to get approved? I'll start by saying that the CIA does not initiate covert actions. Just because we have a very robust covert action capability doesn't mean that People are there pitching ideas to the White House. It goes the other way around. The president always authorizes the covert actions through various kinds of bureaucratic means. This goes back well into the Truman administration, who, you know, Harry Truman was the first president to have a CIA. And the internal process within the White House and the National Security Council has changed over the years, and the names of the groups involved have changed over the years it used to be the 5412 committee named after the National Security Council directive number for the group that established or monitored and formulated covert action. Then it became 
uh, special group, then it became the 303 committee, then the 40 committee, which were references to the locations in the executive office building where they were meeting and things like that. The current organization for formulating, reviewing, authorizing covert actions dates to the George H.W. Bush administration when he set up a system of principals, committees, and deputies committees. The principals are the cabinet level individuals. The deputies are one level down. The deputies get involved in a lot of very intricate and detailed policy formulation. Once they reach a consensus, they kick it up to the principals who then make a recommendation to the president and the NSC at large. And then that's where the general authorization for covert action occurs. A plan is not in place yet. Then it goes to CIA, which has its own extremely rigorous internal process for developing and vetting ideas and specifics about the program. And you have this back and forth discussion between CIA and the White House about what the plan is going to be, what the foreign policy objectives are, how the tactics fit in with the strategy. And eventually, at some point, a consensus is reached and the president issues the finding, which will have a general statement of the foreign policy objectives that the covert action is intended to accomplish. Sometimes those can be rather vague. Sometimes they can be quite specific. We can talk about that distinction later. And when you flip the page, then you will have the tactical plan, in effect, the playbook about what CIA is going to do whether it's going to do it with foreign liaison, whether it's going to do it on its own, what its means will be, how it will measure the effectiveness, possibly a timeline of benchmarks that by this date will accomplish this, by another date will accomplish that. That becomes the foundational document for the covert action. Very few findings have been declassified, but you can find a, a few of them out there on the internet to get a general sense of what the structure of a finding is. Now, looking in at CIA internally, and this has varied over time, but we have a very rigorous internal mechanism process for vetting the plans that the covert action specialists put together. First, we have lawyers looking at it to determine whether it's legal, constitutional. So yeah, and then <laughs> then the tactical plan gets kicked around at various levels. We've had review groups and high-level committees that look at it. Ultimately, it reaches the level of what we call our seventh floor, senior management, the director, deputy director, the operations chiefs, and such. And then that plan will be approved internally. Sometimes it's not, and it's sent back downstairs for refinement. That's a lot of negotiation that goes on in that process. Then it leaves the building, goes downtown, the principals might look at it and say, I don't think this is what we wanted. Back it goes. Sometimes you can have the discussion about a covert action formulation go on so long that by the time it's approved, the situation in the target area has changed significantly <laughs> and you have to sort of start all over or at least modify the plan significantly. Okay. So this is not something where the president's like, hey, CIA director, I'd like regime change in Moscow by next Tuesday. Can you get that done? This sounds like a much more elaborate back and forth process with a lot of different layers of review. 
Well, sorry to say that sometimes that kind of get it done by next week order uh-huh. has almost come down. The Chile covert action in 1970 is the most notorious example of that in which violating one of the fundamental best practices of covert action, we were handed a mission in a place where we didn't have the infrastructure to carry it out and not enough time to carry it out in, and it was a disaster. We'll talk later about what the best practices are of covert action, I believe, and that's certainly one of them, is giving it enough time to work. I'd like to go back, too, to um, another point here when we're talking about the basics of a covert action program. I'd like to refer to something called the William Webster test. Oh, yeah. Which was something that Director Webster formulated after the Iran-Contra scandal. It's a three-part test in which he says in a sort of a descending hierarchy, first is the proposed program legal, constitutional. Second, and if it's not, then that's the end of it. End, right. Right, full stop. (laughs) Second, is it moral, ethical? Does it comport with American values? And third, assuming you've gotten that far, is it something that would cause so much political controversy were it exposed that it wouldn't be worth the trouble. Uh, Sort of the Washington Post test, or as some people like to say, if you had to tell your mother what you did the other day, would she be ashamed of you or would she pat you on the back and say, good boy? It's that kind of three-part test. It's not formalized, but it is sort of inculcated in people at the agency that you have to check all those three boxes before you move ahead. And, you know, we, we were talking before about NSD 79, which was the um, national security directive issued on the very last day of the George H.W. Bush administration to govern covert action. And and it had a very similar test, which is it said, to the extent possible, covert actions should be conducted only when we're confident that if they're revealed, the American public would find them sensible. So I guess for you as the person with a truly, you know, wide, wide view of, of the agency's covert actions, using the Webster test, using the NSD 79 test, do you care to venture an opinion as to sort of what the CIA's batting average is across all its covert actions uh, in meeting those tests? Well, first, the the legal standard changed drastically in the 1970s. So we're now dealing with a set of covert action statutory requirements that we didn't have to deal with in prior years. I mean, most people would be surprised to find out that uh, some of the things that uh, were prohibited, like using U.S. journalists as operators or influence agents, uh, recruiting U.S. members of religious organizations, that we used to do that. Uh, that's, as I said, uh, well, prohibited using the yeah. using the private voluntary associations like the National Student Association as a front. This massive hearts and minds campaign that we ran during the early Cold War involving hundreds of organizations, almost all of them unwitting ultimately of where the money was coming from through a variety of cutouts and pass-throughs to do influence operations overseas or political action overseas, that's all banned now. And I think most Americans would say that's probably not where we want to go with our foreign policy implementation is unwittingly using Americans as intelligence operatives. 
Okay, so fair enough that, that that's right. It's pretty hard to apply a univocal approach here because our expectations and standards have definitely evolved from the early days. What, one more thing about covert action, and I, I'm not really here trying to stoke interagency competition. Well, yes, I am. Covert action can only be done by the CIA unless the president determines that another agency is more likely to achieve a particular objective under the executive order. So if, just by way of example, only the NSA wanted to engage in covert action, uh, perhaps at the urging of their historian, they have to go right to the president to get that authorized. Does, does CIA have a position that you'd care to share on whether it makes sense for other agencies to uh, do covert action? <laughs> I, know, I know what NSA thinks about other agencies doing SIGINT, for example. Sure. I'm not aware of an official position, and that would be entirely up to the president to determine that. I can think of uh, in specific operational scenarios where a, another organization might have a capability, we don't. but Beyond that, I I wouldn't venture anything. Is there, I mean, other than like, say, you know, Admiral McRaven in Abbottabad or something, is there public information uh, about whether the president has authorized covert action by another agency? So putting aside sort of military assets, is there anything public on that? I just actually don't know. I'm not aware of any. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's talk about covert action in practice. Pretty much every president, I think, has used it in one way or another, even before, I mean, going back to the founding era and certainly after 1947. Can you give us a sense uh, of which presidents used it the most, used it the least, who signed the most findings? How do the presidents rate as a, in their use of covert action, roughly speaking? Mm-hmm. We need to distinguish here how exactly you count a covert action. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to have a general foreign policy goal implemented in part through covert action to, say, protect democracy uh, in Western Europe uh, in the the early Cold War. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that, for example, we intervened in the Italian election in 1948 to prevent the communists from winning and subsequently provided massive subsidies to Italian center-right political parties and also center-left because they were sometimes ardently anti-communist. But how do you calculate that as a covert action or is every little thing you did to a union or a political group or a newspaper, is that a separate covert action? It gets very hard to count. Okay, can I just interrupt you on that for, to make one legal point that's clear for folks that, that will help that? I mean, I think every covert action finding is reported to the Congress, in some cases, maybe to the Gang of Eight, but normally to the intelligence committees, each finding. Is that right? Yes, that has to be the case under the law. But what I was talking about is the pre-finding era. I see, right. Which the findings weren't required until uh, the mid-1970s. The um, the Hughes-Ryan Amendment in 1974 required the findings, and the first ones was issued in 75. These prior years, though, you don't have findings. You do have clear documentation within the National Security Council and those groups I'd mentioned earlier, special group, 5412 committee and such, where they are deliberating and providing a recommendation to the president. What you don't find in any of that documentation is Dwight Eisenhower's signature on something saying, go do this in Indonesia. It just didn't work that way. And that gets back to my larger point, which is you can't compare 
the numbers of findings signed with the numbers of covert actions conducted prior to the finding process. Let me just give you some numbers here that come from the Church Committee report. Eisenhower, 104 covert actions, Kennedy, 163, Johnson, 142. Now, that's a far greater number than were conducted later if you simply count findings. But then you have to look at, in specific, what a finding authorizes. So let's just hypothesize you have a sort of a full-bore effort against a particular target that involves influence, political action, economic activity, and paramilitary. Are those four covert actions, or is it just one? They're all different. They'll all have different effects. But how would you count those? And under the law today, if you end up with a very broad finding, like, you know, roll back communism from Western Europe or something, if there's a significant change, then there's a second order documentation and reporting through an MON. Can you just explain sort of how that works and what the word significant might mean uh, in this setting? Right. Uh, MON refers to memorandum of notification. And as you say, it entails the authorization for a substantial change in the focus of a covert action. So, for example, if you are doing political action that initially involved subsidizing, contributing money to political parties or a political party to do something in common interest. And then you decide that with an election coming, you want to more aggressively try to ensure that that political party wins the election. That's a different order of magnitude than simply enabling it to compete in the political process. That would require an MON. Oftentimes, though, when you go from non-lethal to lethal, you have to have a new finding because that's just a very major change in the activities, which explains why, for example, you have Carter, Jimmy Carter, signing initially non-lethal findings pertaining to Nicaragua, then Reagan coming in and signing the lethal findings. Carter with Afghanistan initially signs the non-lethal findings and then signs the lethal findings. I see. So, okay. So counting findings can be a very misleading measure, drawing a line between a finding and a significant change requiring a memorandum of notification requires some judgment and knowing when you need a whole new finding, maybe other than in an upgrade to lethality, probably also is something that requires uh, some exercise of judgment. So these numbers could be very fuzzy. Right. And especially if you're talking about, uh, as you mentioned earlier, a broad finding like you know, counter X country's uh, malign influence or something like that, that can entail a multiplicity of specifics. And whether each of those constitutes a covert action or not is difficult to count. I would, I would give you just one example here. Um, I, I've published a uh, spreadsheet, if you want to call it that, of acknowledged covert actions that's been kicked around on the outside a bit. And what I tried to do in that case, and the, the acknowledged covert actions number roughly 50, but I always caution people to take note that when I say that, I'm just trying to make some generalizations about 
for example, with Vietnam or Afghanistan or Cuba, the changing nature of the constellation of activities we were engaged in as being separate covert actions in aggregate. But again, within each of those are very specific activities that in and of themselves might be regarded as covert actions. So for example, in Vietnam, if you look at the history of our engagement with Vietnam from 54 to 75, you can cut that into probably five or six distinct phases in which our covert action is intended to do something quite different. And that's why I refer in my spreadsheet to Vietnam 1, Vietnam 2, etc. Similarly with the Afghanistan, I distinguish between what we did in the 80s and what we did post 9-11. So I have Afghan 1, Afghan 2, that kind of enumeration. Okay. So let's talk about sort of some of the classic covert action techniques that have been used over time. You, you mentioned earlier what used to be called propaganda and you mentioned lethality, you know, what, what other kinds of techniques? I mean, just to put a fine point on it, have we ever tried to publicly, as far as the public record reveals, have we ever tried to interfere with an election abroad? Yes. As I'd mentioned earlier, one of our first important covert actions was in 1948, uh, intervening in the Italian election to prevent the communists from winning because recent history had shown and certain subsequent history had demonstrated that once a communist government takes power through the ballot box, that's the end of the ballot box. So we wanted to prevent that from happening. And in war-torn Europe, where a lot of people, particularly of leftist persuasion, were looking at the communist panacea as the way of the future, we didn't want that to take root. So that's that's the classic one. What about economic covert action? Can you tell us a little bit about how that gets done? Do we ever do it, for example, to support a U.S. business? I mean, we we know about Director Clapper's 2013 public statement about economic espionage, but is there anything corresponding to that on the covert action side? Or what what does economic covert action look like? It can take a a range of tactics. Uh, It can involve and has It can involve sabotage of economic targets to create stress on a regime that we're trying to stress or possibly remove. It can involve uh, counterfeiting. It can involve manipulation of securities markets or commodities markets. Uh, We did a number of these things in Cuba during the 1960s, for example. But economic covert action doesn't exist in and of itself. And that's one reason why when you see textbooks and histories talk about the four types of covert action, political action, propaganda, covert influence, paramilitary, which means anything lethal or potentially lethal, and economic, usually economic is a subset of political action, or in some cases, paramilitary, if you're using, say, guerrillas to go blow up a factory or something. Because the point of that is to put pressure on a political target to get it to change or to get it to leave power or to encourage an uprising or something like that. Consequently, I don't think of economic covert action in and of itself as a type of covert action. I think it's an adjunct to political or paramilitary. Okay. And you have a privileged position as the CIA's historian. You probably have the 
widest possible perspective, as I mentioned earlier. So do you have a, a, an assessment you can share just overall net, 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 you know, how well has covert action worked in advancing U.S. foreign policy interests? I mean, and maybe putting aside exactly what we mean by success or failure, is, is covert action successful more often than not, or would you rate it as a failure more often than not? That depends on the type of covert action. The paramilitary types of covert action tend to fail more than the others, in part because they are much harder to keep covert. When suddenly some organization is very aggressive in its insurgent activity, things are getting blown up, government forces are getting killed, etc. Usually only a small number of international actors have any interest in supporting that activity against that particular government. And it's pretty easy to figure out who's ultimately involved. And they, they simply, just because they're so noisy, they have repercussions. Uh, the whole process of aiding and abetting an insurgency is very complex logistically with all sorts of potentials for compromises. So they tend to fail more in part because they become blown. We're more successful in political action, but when you get into the softer stuff like covert influence, it's very hard to determine precisely the impact that you're having. And we might want to wander off later into a discussion of measures of operation versus measures of effectiveness, but it becomes quite difficult, as we've already alluded to, in the interconnectedness of the uh, digital uh, world to say that we put out a message or some messages through various platforms. How do you tell whether anybody listened? Did they respond? Did they change their attitude or behavior, which is ultimately what you're trying to get them to do? That's tough to to gauge. Hmm. And I know you're not like necessarily directly involved in today's covert action operations or, or the processes that lead to them. But I mean, I guess, do you ever get invited to go and brief the new crop of super smart deputies and principals who are making these decisions and sort of tell them what has worked and what hasn't worked? Because it, it, it feels like it might be kind of an addictive, appealing thing for, you know, brilliant uh, State Department and, and other planners and thinkers who are in these government jobs, even if over time, you know, this is a group of investors who don't really beat the market. So what, what do you think is the, the thinking of these people as they come into these jobs? And, and have you ever had an opportunity to try to educate them about the long-term historical data about whether they can actually make a success? Yes, thankfully I have. And this is one of the functions of the history staff, which we didn't talk a whole lot about at the start of our conversation here. What what does the history staff do? Uh, we're not an academic enterprise. We don't just sit out in a building and write thick books and dense articles that nobody reads. Not and, that there's anything wrong with that, of course. <laughs> I've done my share of those, believe me. But no, we're, we are heavily engaged in the day-to-day -day education and support of CIA's mission. We teach in our directorate training classes. We brief practitioners and managers about all aspects of agency history. And in the covert action area, I'm quite involved, and as are some of the members of my staff, in providing these kinds of historical backdrops as people move ahead and think about 
current operations. And I have been involved in some specific instances where I have briefed uh, various people in the agency and in the U.S. government on particular or general themes in covert action history. And they have taken that on and used that as a way to inform their decision-making on current and future programs. That's a very important part of the history staff's business. Okay. Well, that's actually very comforting. And typically, each new administration, particularly if it's from a different party, will do some kind of zero-based review of all the major programs. Is, is that fair to say? I mean, just to make sure they know what's going on and that they're comfortable with them? Yes. When we have a presidential transition, uh, the president-elect and the vice president-elect, and if that time he has accumulated a little collection of national security advisors who are properly cleared, they will get a covert action briefing even before the inauguration. Uh, we provide briefings to presidential candidates. We've done that for decades. And then when the president-elect is preparing to take on the job, we provide a greater degree of specificity about what we're doing. It's not just kind of a tour of the horizon and an overview of intelligence capabilities. We get quite detailed about what we're doing in the covert action and espionage areas. So when they get into office, they have at least that basic background knowledge. And then once in office, they have the authority to do a full, if you will, zero-based review, as you call it, of the existing programs and to decide whether they want to continue all of them or modify some of them, or if the ones that are in place are consistent with their foreign policy strategies, they will leave them be. Okay. So, all right, we've, we've got a few minutes left. Let's talk about some particular covert action programs to the extent that uh, you can, you know, tell me without having to kill me. Let's begin with, oh, I don't know, regime change in Iran. And I refer, of course, here to the year 1953 and Operation Ajax. Can you tell us about Ajax? Was it a success? Was it a failure? And again, a little bit, how do you even evaluate that? As you were saying, what are the right metrics? What's the right time frame? You know, can you draw a line from Ajax to Khomeini? But, but tell us about Ajax and how it worked. Right. The uh, effort to remove from power a troublesome left-wing nationalist prime minister was the motivation. The U.S. government had preoccupation with that, with that type of political leader in the early Cold War period because the concern was if they were of that persuasion, they would probably eventually wind up in the communist camp, not overtly as communist, but pro-Soviet. So we tended to want to moderate those governments or in some cases, as you know, try to remove them from power, as was the case with Ajax. One important misconception about Ajax, however, is that we supposedly did it to install the Shah back in power. The Shah never left power. He left the country, but he did not abdicate. Also, he had the constitutional authority to remove the prime minister. The fact that Mossadegh was popularly elected as a parliamentarian and then chosen by the legislature as the prime minister, that was all a democratic process to be sure. But the Shah did have the authority to remove him. This is why uh, the Ajax program is regarded as very undemocratic because we were removing a popularly elected leader from power. It's a much grayer area than that, as a number of these programs 
uh, are. I should go ahead and throw out the basic fact that one of the misconceptions a lot of people have about covert action comes from the fact that only certain specific programs were publicized as a result of the church committee hearings, and they represent an extremely skewed sample. You're talking about the assassination plots. You're talking about regime change programs against, in some cases, democratically elected or popularly supported governments. That misconception, that skewed sample has tainted discussion of covert action for years and years. Those same small set of programs, like trying to kill Lumumba in the Congo, trying to kill or get rid of Castro, uh, getting rid of Sukarno in Indonesia, the Shah and Ajax and all of that. Those are the only ones you ever see, for the most part, cropping up in the popular literature. Whereas, and I've studied this extensively, if you take the full range of our covert actions, I, of course, here can only talk about the acknowledged ones, but the they are a representative sample of the ones that are still behind the curtain, if you will. And that's about 50, you said, that you've roughly Roughly 50, yeah. again, depending on how you want to count it, as I described earlier. Mm-hmm. I find that about 87% of these fall into either very overtly pro-democratic, that is, protecting democratic processes where they exist, or trying to encourage them to flourish where they don't, or in a slightly grayer category of covert programs as we move into systems that aren't really modeled after Western democracies, you have efforts to protect countries from being turned into totalitarian satellite states, to be able to choose their own way, to engage in local self-government, live their own lives in effect. And If you add those two categories together, you get roughly six out of seven of our covert programs fall into that area. It's that third set, the ones that are more aggressively anti-democratic in the sense of overthrowing an elected leader, killing somebody who's popularly supported, etc. Those are the ones that people hang on when they think about covert action, if they think about it at all. And that gives such a very skewed perception of what we're doing. And we don't do covert action to put tin pot dictators in power. We have on occasion preferred them to the alternatives, but that's a very small subset of what we've done. Okay. That's actually quite interesting. So 87% pro-democracy. And and of course, you have the advantage of, of being able to look at all of the programs, including the classified ones, just to sort of give a feel for how you're you know doing that counting and, and line drawing. Of the 87%, would you count Ajax as within that 87% of pro-democracy? Because you mentioned before that the Shah was technically still in power, I guess, under the Iranian constitution. It doesn't seem to me that um, validating or defending the Iranian constitution was the principal motivation, and and you weren't saying it was, behind Ajax. But where on the side of that 87% would you put Ajax? That would be in the undemocratic basket. Okay. All right. Just for folks who are, you know, sort of wondering how your what your methodology right, is, of right. course, and there's no way to peer review everything here, and at least until many years have passed. Okay, that's actually quite interesting. W- what about Afghanistan and the, you know, man pads being deployed against the the Soviets? What's the right like perspective on that? We've all seen the movie Charlie Wilson's War. Uh, many of us have seen the movie, you know, Lone Survivor. 
what's the is there a line to be drawn? How do you, as a historian, sort of figure out the right time frame for measuring the impact and effectiveness of a covert action? Mm-hmm. Here you have to distinguish between the specific objective of the covert action, that is, what the president wanted CIA to accomplish, and the short, medium, and long-term ramifications of that covert action after it's completed or terminated in in some cases. If you look at Iran, for example, you have CIA accomplishing specifically what it was intended to do, although it became pretty dicey at certain times during that short period when we were aggressively engaged. But nonetheless, the Shah was back in, not that he ever left, but there he was. And okay, we're done. That was what we were supposed to do. Then over the next quarter century, through multiple presidencies of different parties and persuasions, you have support for the Shah as a foundation of our Middle East policy. The fact that he was doing some good things in his country, but also some questionable things and creating a lot of opposition to himself, that was something that the U.S. government was willing to live with. And then uh, the pot boils over in 1979, and suddenly CIA is blamed for Khomeini. I think that's bad history. I would argue the same thing about the Congo. The Lumumba assassination business aside, which is regrettable, and thankfully we never were able to kill anybody during the brief time we were trying to, the program, very complicated and only declassified completely for the most part a few years ago, involved a whole array of covert actions over an eight-year period, soft and hard. Ultimately, it leads to Joseph Mobutu taking control of the government. Now, that's not what we wanted initially, and it didn't come about the way we wanted it. We preferred a parliamentary process, but that wasn't going to work in a country that had absolutely no experience with that kind of governance. So the policymakers, both the Kennedy and the later Johnson administration, said, we need to just have a national leader who can keep this very important country from falling apart and probably becoming a a Soviet satellite. So Mobutu is an acceptable alternative. This is one of those gray area sorts of uh, covert actions. So 1968, CIA packs up its covert action apparatus, stays in country for espionage reasons, of course, but the covert action is through in 68. 30 years pass, again, multiple administrations, multiple perspectives, different political parties, all are willing to live with Mobutu, even though he's destroying his country gradually. And we know what happened uh, at the end of the 1990s. Covert action success, yes, but the long-term foreign policy implications were bad, but that is a policy matter. Richard Helms once said the CIA is not a nation-building organization. That's the State Department's business. And so you have to recognize in the complicated history of covert action that clear distinction between an operational mission and then a handoff to the policymakers. Therein lies a lot of the idea that covert action fails when in actuality, I would contend that it was a policy failure. Yeah. So it might have been a sort of a short, medium term success, but if somebody pulls the rug out from under it later and, and you know, then it obviously bad things follow. And I suppose, to be fair, I I like to challenge you in these conversations, but also, to be fair, the same can be said about overt foreign policy initiatives, which seem very sensible at the time. They may achieve some good results, but depending on your perspective, you can, of course, 
draw lines that, uh, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, put something in a different light. But you know what they say, life is lived forward and understood backwards. So, you know, what do you think? We got a couple minutes left. I want to ask you a few questions at the end. I mean, just net net across the whole run of these things. Can you say what you think uh, among the public ones is the most successful and maybe the least successful covert action just to give us a bookend on this? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, and it again gets into that very difficult issue of evaluating what the covert action was intended to accomplish versus what the longer term outcome was. Um, I would say that for the most part, our programs in Western Europe were successful in preventing a lot of instability that a communist government might have caused or limiting the uh, amount of instability that the communist opposition was able to carry out. Uh, Some of our programs turned out to be successes with uh, strange results ensuing, not through anything we did, but simply because we established the process we wanted to, and then it turned out to be not quite what we had hoped for. Two examples, uh, British Guiana, in which we intervened in an election, once again, to go back to your earlier question, to try to get out of power another one of these left-wing nationalists we didn't trust, and replace him, now that British Guiana was going to become independent, with a more reliable pro-Western individual. Well, this person, Forbes Burnham, turned out to be a disaster because no sooner had we enabled him to win the election than he turned on us and became pro-Soviet, pro-Chinese, pro-everything we didn't want. And finally, we at some point had to cut our ties to them. Nicaragua is another interesting example, which has to be distinguished from Iran-Contra, which was uh, an illegal sideshow. The the basic point was to force the Sandinistas to live up to their promises to have democratic elections. Remember, the Sandinistas replaced a dictator, and now they come in and say, well, we're going to liberate the country. Well, they didn't. They started to crack down, as the Marxists typically do. So our program there, a combination of political action, propaganda, and paramilitary, was purposed to pressure the government to finally live up to its promise. Eventually, the government did because the Contras, once they got the money uh, restored in 86, started winning on the battlefield. And the Sandinistas, in effect, said, we need to sue for peace. The election is held. The widow of a former Contra leader wins, Violeta Chamorro, and democracy reigns. Now, courtesy of the democratic process we enabled in Nicaragua, (laughs) Daniel Ortega Ortega, wins the election. (laughs) And now he's going back to what he was doing in a slightly different manner back in the 1970s imposing authoritarian rule and corrupting the democratic process there. This is why covert action is so immensely complicated and from a historian standpoint, so fascinating to study. Yeah. And so sort of jumping off that, how do covert actions become public? Sometimes it's through unexpected and inadvertent activity. For example, the Contra program, though lots of people knew about it, but generally kept their mouths shut about it, becomes exposed when an aircraft being used to supply materiel to the Contras is shot down, and the Sandinistas find out who this person is, publicize it, have a show trial, and all of that. That prompted the the big uproar about that. 
more formally, more legitimately, the U.S. government or the president, and more precisely, decides that for various reasons, a program can be surfaced, whether it's to publicize a success or whether it's for a political calculation. Uh, that's another matter. We also have a formal process in which documentation about covert actions is reviewed, declassified, and released through the State Department's Foreign Relations of the U.S. documentary series. That's probably, to maybe anticipate a, your later question about sources, that would be a very good way for students and scholars and academics to study covert action, to look at those fruce volumes, as we call them, and find an extensive amount of declassified material through that process. We also have uh, FOIA, the FOIA process sometimes puts out material on covert action. And then the history staff itself has declassified uh, a few of its own internal histories of covert actions, uh, which are available uh, on our public website. Okay, yes, I did want to make sure, and thank you for that, that uh, folks who want to take a deeper dive into this have uh, have some ideas about where to go. And I'll just add one more uh, source of extremely valuable information that I recommend very highly, which is a series of YouTube video lectures that are available on YouTube from David Robarge, <laughs> the CIA's historian. David, I, I watched a bunch of yours before we got together and started planning this, and I think they're extremely informative and valuable. Uh, so make sure that uh, those who are interested in pursuing this further go out and track those down, because they're definitely worth the watching. So David, thank you so much. Uh, this has really been very informative. Uh, and, you know, for the topic of covert action, uh, you've been remarkably forthcoming and informative here. And so I really, I really appreciate uh, your taking the time to talk with us. Thank you, David. It's always a pleasure. It's uh, obviously one of my favorite topics. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer is Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.